Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Rethink Culture podcast, the podcast that shines a spotlight on business leaders who are rethinking working workplace culture. My name is Andreas Constantino, and I'm your host, and I'm also chairman and founder at Slash Data. I'm an accidental micromanager who turned servant leader, leader over the years, and developed a personal passion for workplace culture. Today, I have the rare pleasure of welcoming Gary Ridge. Um, Gary spent 25 years as CEO of WD40. He's now Chairman Emeritus of that company, and he spends his time coaching CEOs uh, on culture, among other things. He's the author of Helping People Win at Work with Ken Blanchard, and he's also writing a new book, he tells me, which is provocatively titled any damn ass can do it. He is born in Australia. He lives in San Diego, where he also teaches in a, as an adjunct professor. And he's also worked in over 70 countries. And when I asked him about his frequent flyer miles, he's accumulated over 7 million miles with American Airlines. That's quite a trophy, Gary. Welcome to the Rethink Culture Podcast. G'day, Andres. It's such a delight to be with you. Thank you so much. So where do we start? Do you want to start with a um, quick description of what is culture to you? And maybe tell us a bit about the WD40 tribe and the culture you've built there. Yeah, thank you. you know, I, I think businesses and leaders have a responsibility that they probably haven't lived up to over many years. And you know, if I could accomplish one thing, it would be to help companies create a workplace culture where people can go to work every day knowing that their efforts make a, a contribution to a cause that's actually bigger than themselves, where they feel safe and safety is so important, where they're protected and set free by a compelling set of values that empower them, uh, where they learn something new and try new things without fear. And this makes people for happy people. And happy people create happy families. And happy families create happy communities. And we absolutely need a happy world. So culture to me is creating the environment that I've just described with the elements that are so important. Indeed, we often forget that our duty as leaders extend beyond the company into the lives and the families and the communities of the people that we serve. We touch, so, businesses touch more people every day than anything else. So, you know, people do a good job when doing meaningful work with people they enjoy. People want to know they matter and they want to feel like they belong. And, uh, you know, caring in an organization is what I call premium fuel. And you don't run a Ferrari on standard fuel. So care is so important in an organization. So what is your journey in culture? Did you instinctively have a feel for what culture you wanted to build at WT40 or was it like a revelation? Was it an inflection point? What was it? Yeah, there it was an aha for me. Um, you know, I joined WD40 in 1987 in Australia. I opened the Australian subsidiary there and I worked out of Sydney from 87 to 94, doing most of my work, in fact, in Asia. And in 1994, I got the opportunity to move to the United States. They asked me to move here to help with our global expansion. 
And in 1987, 1997, the then CEO retired and I was given the privilege and honor of leading the company. And I, I was scared, but I wasn't afraid. Um, I knew what our, what our opportunity was. It was to take the blue and yellow can with a little red top to the world. And I knew how to do that operationally, but how did you do it with, with people so that you didn't have to micromanage anything? Anyhow, um, I was actually on an aeroplane and I was flying from Los Angeles to Sydney. And as you do when you're on an aeroplane, you always have a bunch of stuff you read. And I was reading through some articles and I read this quote that was attributed, I believe, to the Dalai Lama. And it said, our purpose in life is to make people happy. If we can't make them happy, at least don't hurt them. And I thought, wow, that makes a lot of sense to me. Then interestingly enough, I then read a, a quote from Aristotle, who was born in 384 BC, and it says, pleasure in the job puts perfection in the work. And I thought, how wow, doesn't that make sense? If we had an organization that there was pleasure in the job, the, the work output would have to be better. But I didn't know how to do that. So anyhow, I, I got back to San Diego and I was reading a, a, a newspaper and I read about a program at the University of San Diego and it was a master's degree in leadership. So I went to an information session and I heard Dr. Ken Blanchard, the one minute manager, probably the one of the, the, the most known global people around servant leadership. And he said, most MBA programs get people in the head. We got to start getting people in the heart. And I went, wow. So here I am, CEO of a US public company. I didn't know what I didn't know around culture. So I went back to school and I did a master's degree, the master's degree in leadership. Ken was one of my professors amongst others. And then subsequently, you know, years later, we wrote a book together. But that's where I learned the power of servant leadership. And being in my role as CEO, I was able to take that learning and uh, start to implement it in the organization. So that's where the journey started. And uh, the rest is history. You know, the people around us ended up uh, building just an amazing culture that today is, you know, we have WD40 has 93% employee engagement and 98% of the people who work in the company globally say they love to tell people they work at the company. Um, wow. So that's... That's unheard of. That's unheard of. Well, it's not unheard of. We, they did it. <laughs> so how do you get from this vision in your head about leading from the heart to metabolizing these ideas within the organization? Well, I think you first have to decide or you have to know what are the ingredients that need to be in place uh, in an organization to build a great culture. And I learned a lot of that those ingredients when I was going through the, the program. But it also took me back many, many, many years to a science class that I did in high school. And I remember my science teacher saying, we're going to grow culture. And he gave us a Petri dish. And he said, now what we're going to do with this Petri dish is we're going to grow culture. And there are two things that you need to keep in mind about that. Number one, what are the ingredients that you put in the dish? And then you, as the owner of the dish, have to do two things. You have to continually feed the ingredients that, that grow great culture. And more importantly, 
or equally as important, you have to treat toxins as they enter the dish. Now, the challenge was, what do, you, what do leaders know what to put in the dish? And, and, and here are the things I think that should be in the dish. Firstly, you have to have a people-first mindset. You're not there to manage people. You're there to coach people. Our job is to coach people to help them you know, achieve the best they possibly can. You have to have clearly defined, authentic purpose. Why are we getting up today? What's our just cause in an organization? You have to have a hierarchical set of clearly defined values. Now, why do they need to be hierarchical? Because people, you don't want people cherry-picking a value uh, to meet a certain situation. So they have to be hierarchical. You have to have a transparent and simple vision. So transparency is so important. We instigated what we call the learning moment, and my, my consulting business is called the learning moment. And what's the learning moment? Well, the learning moment is a positive or negative outcome of any situation that needs to be openly and freely shared to benefit all people. So we took the word failure out and we said, we don't make mistakes. We have learning moments. And if you've read any of Amy Edmondson's work or anyone, any of that work, it talks about creating psychological safety. Now, interestingly enough, WD-40, the product, was born on learning moments because when it was invented, there were 39 formulas that didn't work and the 40th one worked. So if they had have given up at 39, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. You have to create belonging, acceptance, and connectedness. People want to know they belong, they want to be connected, and they want to know they matter. You have to have four pillars of care. You need to care for your people. You need to have candor in an organization, and connect, candor to me is no lying, no faking, no hiding. I believe most people don't lie. I believe they fake and hide. The next one is accountability. What are you going to be accountable for and what am I going to be accountable for? And is there clarity around that? And then an organization that respects responsibility. And then finally, you have to, be, you have, to have what I call brave accountability and behavior. Most leaders protect their own comfort zone at the expense of other people's development. So, you know, le culture is not about popcorn, peanuts, ping pong. It's about having a harder gold and a backbone of steel. It's a balance between being tough-minded and tender-hearted. So the Petri dish is important. To build great culture, do you have the right ingredients? Have you identified them? Are they in place? And then as leaders, are you brave enough to not only reward and applaud, but also redirect behaviors that are not um, fueling that positive culture? That was quite a download, Gary. Amazing list of ingredients for, for culture. Very well thought out. Uh, but my question then is, okay, so you, so you have all this figured out. And then you have this large workforce. I mean, I assume it's in the thousands, right? Or tens of thousands. Oh, not tens of thousands. No, there's not. There's thousands. Yeah. In the, in the thousands still. And then, like, how do you pass that along? Um, is it like a set of values and behaviors? Is it like culture oppor uh, opportunities to reinforce the culture? Like, how do you make that real? Well, it, it, it first starts with the leadership. Leadership truly is the reflection of culture. So our leadership team had to agree to and 
certainly support the fact that this is what we're going to live up to. And it was our values as an organization that bonded us together. We had the same values in any of our operations around the world. Um, so they they bound us together. And then leadership has to, uh, you know, there's zero tolerance. It means we're going to go out there. Mm. The other thing that we did was in the book I wrote with Ken Blanchard, which is called Helping People Win at Work, we actually, um, it, and it talks about having these uh, conversations with the people you have the privilege to lead. And we actually had our values embedded in those conversations. So at least every 90 days, we would ask people in the organization to tell us how have they lived our values in the last 90 days? Give us real examples. And we only had two measurements. You either lived our value or you visited the value and we didn't want visitors. We wanted people to live. So mm. this, this process is continual. You know, it's, a friend of mine, uh, Charlie Malouf, is a is the the CEO of a, a, an organization in the US called uh, Broad River Retail. They own a number of huge furniture stores. He has a beautiful statement. He says, "You cannot microwave culture; it takes a crockpot approach." And a lot of people think you can go and you know sprinkle fairy dust on an organization with a couple of you know random programs and some training efforts and suddenly boom you have a great culture no it doesn't work it's simple it's not easy and time is not your friend you have to be continually living up to the values and the principles that you've embedded in the organization you mentioned to me earlier about your four values and i always find that you know, there needs to be some alignment between the CEO's values and the company values. Otherwise, it's just not fun leading that business. So did these values emerge out of the culture you built at WD-40 or were you always aware of, of those four values that you represent In, and yeah. infuse these into the company? Interestingly enough, the four that I shared with you have been a, a recent um, uh awareness of them for me. I, I, I you know, I, I was trying to understand why I, I behaved the way I did. And the four were hope, harmony, optimism, and confidence. So I'm a, per, you know, I think leaders have to be champions of hope. No doubt about it. Harmony being, you know, um, we're most inspired when everyone and everything is working in harmony together. And that doesn't happen by accident because things go off the rails. So we've got to, we've got to bring that together in the organization. Uh, you know, optimism being that, you know, we know that there is a better future. So these are so important. for, And then confidence is so important too in that you have a high degree of confidence in your ability to execute. So those were an awareness of the behaviors that I think motivate me the most. The values at WD-40 company, the first value was we value doing the right thing. The second value was we value creating positive, lasting memories in all of our relationships. So you can see that the hmm. second value was very aligned with building positive relationships within our organization, but positive relationships with the customers we have the privilege to serve, positive relationships with Mother Nature who allows us to exist. So... You know, it was those that were, were really important. And those values came out of a process we did 26 years ago where we brought people together and said, what are the things that are more important to us than anything else? 
And as I said, they were they were a hierarchical. The number sixth value was we value sustaining the WD40 company economy, which is really how do we build a an economy within the business that can support the constituents within the business? Because you know, at the end of the day, strategy must support the financial needs of the business. Because if you're not profitably successful, then how can you support the culture? You can't do it. Now, as I shared with you, you know, we had a very high employee engagement, but over a 25-year period, we nearly 6X'd our revenue and we had a compounded annual growth rate of total shareholder return of over 15% a year. Our market cap went from $300 million to nearly $2.6 billion. Who did that? We just sell oil in a can. Who did that? Our people did that because they were the ones that lived up to, you know, they went to work creating memories that are positive amongst themselves and going home happy. It was a place they wanted to work. Wonderful. Gary, before we continue on culture, I want to quiz you with uh, this game I like to play, which is two truths and one lie. Oh. So what are two truths and one lie for you in no particular order? Uh. And we'll figure them out at the end. Okay, um, two through some one lie. Number one is I once had an Afro hairdo. Number two was I once was a, a, a radio disc jockey in Sydney, Australia. I had a radio program on Sydney radio. And number three was I played first grade rugby in high school. Oh, that's a tough one. They also likely. That's um. why I like them. <laughs> I would, I'll go for a random one, which is that you didn't play rugby, you played another sport, but we'll find out at the end. Okay. Um, all right. Thank you for that. Now, lots of stuff to, to talk about. Um, and we did have a warm up discussion be, be, before pressing the record button. So you told me, or you showed me this little guy, um, the, the soul sucking leader. This guy. This guy. Yeah. This. So. Yeah, this is Al, or it could be Alice, and they're the souls. I call them the soul-sucking CEO of Fear, Inc., um, because it's their behaviors in an organization that create these toxic cultures. And, you know, they're, they're behaviors that many, many leaders have, um, and when they become aware of them, and that's one of the big things about leadership is, you know, hold the mirror to your face and see which of these behaviors you have and how you're going to change them. And I probably, I'm going to share some of them with you. And I probably had most of these behaviors at a high, at some level of competence over my career. Now, the number one, one that is really destroying is this person's ego eats their empathy instead of their empathy eating their ego, because empathy and leadership is so important. How do we care about other people? I said care was the premium food. Number two, they think micromanagement is essential. Now, I heard you say a little earlier that you had that early on. You had a little dose. I did. I did. A little dose of micromanaging. They think they're corporate royalty. You know, they have the biggest office in the building, a private parking spot. They love a fear-based culture. They're a master of control and a know-it-all. They have all the answers, even the wrong ones. They must always be right. They hate feedback and they usually don't follow through on their commitments. They're unreliable. So there's some of the habits of Al or Alice, the soul-sucking leader or CEO versus 
What are the habits or the habits of a servant leader? Well, firstly, a servant leader involves and loves their people. They must always be in servant leadership mode. We are here to serve. They're expected to be competent, great learners. I love the sign behind you, always learning. We need to always be learning. They, they have a high degree of emotional intelligence. In other words, they have the radar of feeling. They love learning moments because learning moments are the opportunity to be entrepreneurial and, and grow and be better. They have a heart of gold, but they've got a backbone of steel. As I said, it's not about, you know, there's a balance between tough-minded and tender-hearted. They're champions of hope. They know micromanagement is not scalable. They always do what they say they're going to do, and they love the gift of feedback. And for those listening but not watching, you were holding up a little doll that you made, right? Yes. That looks like a soul-sucking leader with a um, face covered in, in blood. Uh, it's just right? a big and mouth. A Taipei written on it. It's just a big mouth. Yeah. That's... A big, ma- big mouth? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And, um, oh, I get it. Um, so... Yeah, very vivid. Um, I, w- when I when I took that transition from like micromanager to servant leader, and it was many many years um, of transition. One of the pivotal books for me was Liz Wiseman's Multipliers. Oh yeah, great book. Which talks about the multipliers and the diminisher manager. Is there another book which you recommend? Um, leaders should read as they become more conscious about how they lead others? Well, I'm going to give you two. The first one I'm going to give you is an amazing book that's been around for years and years, and it's called Everything You Need to Know You'll Learn in Kindergarten. And it's written by Robert Fulgram. Fulgram. And uh, in fact, I, I read this book every summer um, because it reminds me again of what did we learn in kindergarten? And, and some simple things, you know, Uh, say please and thank you, pick up after yourself, you know, rely on a friend. Some, if we were to take those and put them into practice, it would be wonderful. The other book that I really love is written by a friend of mine. His name is Ron Carusi. It's called To Be Honest. And it talks about all of the things that are, that are alive in organizations that we don't want to be honest about. For example, you know, as a leader, don't think people aren't talking about you at home tonight. They are. But what are they saying? Are they saying, wow, I hope he doesn't call on me to have a meeting because I never have a good outcome? You know, is, is he going to create a, an organization which is the, the job that I want to have? You know, when I get, you know, that message that, that I'm booked on an Outlook, uh, Outlook calendar, do I just freeze? So um, to be honest, is a great book and um, and it really does have some great examples of, Yeah, people mm. are talking about you. So what are they saying? And you know what they're saying? They're saying what you create. Actions speak louder than words. Leadership is a shadow. Well, culture is a shadow of the leadership. It's, you know, the fish rots from the head. Right, right. So if you were to write a book on how to build a thriving culture, where would you start or what chapters would that book have? Well, that's kind of the book that I'm writing. Um, And the first chapter in the book is called, Are You Okay? And it's really about, are the people in the organization okay? You know, how, how do you feel? And, and, you know, the first thing you have to do to change culture is you as the leader have to be aware of who you are. 
because it's it's like you said, Andreas, when you had to pivot from being a, a micromanager, that was a, an, an amazing revolution because that's who you were. So firstly, do you know who you are as a leader? And in fact, the, the master's degree I did at USD, the first week of the course was all about understanding who you are. You know, who do you are? What are your values? You know, where do you sit? And then what do you like about that and what don't you like? I actually did in a disc profile, my disc profile, mm -hmm. when I went into the program, I was a turbo D. And the de my definition of a turbo D is be brief, be bright, and be gone. That wasn't going to build a great culture. I had to move myself into more of an I, which was more of the interpersonal person. And that had to be deliberate. And now if I take a DISC program, instead of being a DI, I'm an ID because I've changed those behaviors. Another book that's a fabulous book around that is written by my friend Marshall Goldsmith. And it's a book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And it's the 20 bad habits that through his coaching career have he's identified in leaders that they need to be aware of. Yeah, I love Marshall Goldsmith. Um, so in your, in your transformation, were there some values or principles which stood the test of time? Something perhaps that you inherited from your childhood, a former experience which really influenced who you became? Yeah, I, I, you know, I can think of three things. Uh, number one, my, my dad... Um, he worked for the same company for 50 years, from when he was 15 to when he was 65. He started as what was called a fitter and turner and ended up as an engineer. And the one thing that I admired about Dad was he was consistent. You know, he said, a man's word is a man's bond. You need to do what you say you're going to do. Uh, and he, he, was, he was very much around, you know, the principles of, of of what a, a, a good leader should be, dependable and, and reliable and a great learner. My mum, who lived till she was 99 years and nine months old, she was born in 1914. She only passed away about nine years ago. She was an adventurer and she would always tell me, you know, you can, you can be anybody you want to be, you know. She used to make a funny comment, you know, she used to say, Gary, even the Queen of England sits down to pee. So, you know, let's level ourselves <laughs> out. And, you know, God bless Queen Elizabeth, she's not with us anymore. And then I had the opportunity growing up to have experiences. You know, I worked in the local hardware store and the local dry cleaning store and I actually worked in a local sports store. And that store was owned by a guy, his name was Jack Lambert. And part of what that store did, they did repairs on tennis rackets. And I remember walking out into the back workshop one day and he had a tennis racket kind of in a vice and he was pulling the, 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 what they used to call cat gut, which I'm sure wasn't, it was nylon, through the holes. And then at the end, he would have a little roller and he would turn the roller and, and tense the, this uh, string and then put a, a, like a, a spike in to hold it. But it was always rubbing on his finger. So he had lots of calluses on his fingers. And I remember saying to him one day, Hey, Mr. Lamb, but that's damn hard work. Um, you know, is that your tennis racket? And he said, no, it's not my tennis racket. And the lesson he, he gave me is he was stringing a tennis racket for one of the top tennis players in Australia. And he said, his game tomorrow somewhat depends on the work that I do today. 
And it's a bit like that story around who, um, who packed your, your parachute. So our job as leaders in creating great cultures is to remember that the work we're doing, there's a lot of people depending on us. You know, we have no right to get in the way of people doing good work. Our job is not to mark people's paper, it's to help them get an A. And that's what the, what, how we talk about it as coaches. You know, we're not managers, we're coaches. And if you think about a great coach, never runs on the playing field, always is on the sideline observing the play, knows the rules and knows what it takes to win and spends a lot of time in the locker room building great mm. com- camaraderie and connection. So, you know, we need to be coaches and our job is not to mark people's paper. It's to help them get A's. So what does that A look like and how are we going to help people succeed? And coaching is something that is overlooked, definitely not in the dictionary of most managers, in my experience, you know, We talk about leaders versus managers, leaders being those that help people get the most out of their uh, potential. But coaching specifically is such a core aspect of getting people to outperform their potential. Absolutely. And I love a, a quote of Adam Grant. He says, it's easy to be a critic or a cheerleader It's harder to be a coach. A critic sees your weaknesses and attacks your worst self. A cheerleader sees your strengths and celebrates your best self. A coach sees your potential and helps you become a better version of yourself. And in fact, the WD-40 company, we took the word manager out. Everybody was called a coach. So if you reported to me, I was your coach. So we took the word manager out, which absolutely put the responsibility on a person. You're not, you manage your bank account and you manage inventory. You don't manage people. What you do is help people become a better version of themselves. Which is exactly the reason I, I hate the term HR. Yes. Because that is about resources and we're not resources to be managed and directed. We're humans to be led and inspired. It's about co- coached. Yeah. Hey, that function is really about culture and capabilities. That's what it should be called, culture and capabilities. And um, from everything that you've built at WD40 in terms of culture, what's one shining example, something you'd be proud if others stole from you? Well, firstly, I didn't build it. I didn't do this on my own. This is not, you know, it's not Gary's magic. You know, we had the inspiration mm. and we brought the tools and I couldn't do it without us all doing it. So we built it together. Um, I think what I would like people to, to, to take away or to, to steal is the first thing I said when I said we're the ingredients, a people first mindset, we need to care about our people. So, You know, be a caring organization, which means you've got to be both tough-minded and tender-hearted. And uh, as I said, this is simple. It's not easy, and time is not your friend. So you have to have consistency around it. So, But care. You know, life's a gift. Don't send it back unwrapped. Let's, let's, let's unwrap what we need to unwrap and enjoy and send people home happy and do what we need to do to make this world a little better place because it needs to be better. It's not a happy world. How do you balance in practice caring versus caring for people versus caring about performance? Is this a 
conflicting balance or is it a complementary balance? No, it's a complementary balance as long as you have been very clear about what we're going to hold each other accountable for. So, mm. you know, most performance, uh, m- most performance is, is really about have we been clear about what I'm going to hold you accountable for and what are you going to hold me accountable for? So there's clarity around what are we in this together to achieve, which is so important. And how do you instill a sense of ownership? So apart from the engagement, which is the care aspect of your philosophy, how do you instill a sense of ownership so that the people can take care of the business while you take care of the people? Well, as I said, two things people want to do. They want to belong and they want to know they matter. So we have, we install what we call the tribal culture. And the tribal culture is a place where a group of people come together to protect and feed each other. And if you, when I say tribal, it's not because of any reflection on any particular indigenous group. It's a reflection on we are tribal as a, as a, a human being. That's where we all started. So... What's the number one responsibility of a tribal leader? Number one responsibility is to be a learner and a teacher. You know, if we were to go back in time thousands of years to my homeland of Australia and observe a group of Indigenous Australians at a camp meeting, what would the the, the leader be doing? The leader would be teaching that person to throw a boomerang. Why? Because the boomerang was the tool of survival. So if you couldn't throw a boomerang, you would not survive. So our responsibility as a leader is to help people throw boomerangs. So we we only do that by continually learning and continually teaching, which then empowers and helps the people grow. Mm. And if you help people grow, they come back and say, yeah, I'm growing. I'm, I'm, I'm able to be a better person. I feel better in my life. I feel empowered. Uh, now I have ownership. And another thing we were discussing earlier is this um, question that Seth Godin um, posed in his latest book, The Song of Significance, which is, how can we build an organization uh, which is someone's best ever job, which to me is so heartfelt. So if you were to be appointed a CEO of another company with that mission, where would you start? I would start with the leadership. Is the leadership, you know, it's, are the leaders brave enough to care about their people, mm. to be candid with their people? Are they brave enough to hold their people accountable? And are they brave enough to be responsible for their behaviours? Um, so, but it all starts with the leadership. You know, who are you as a leader? And what do you have to change? Because that's the example that will be said. So what do we as leaders need to rethink about culture, do you think? It's not about you. It's about the people that you've been given the privilege and honor to lead. Because everybody who comes to, as Bob Chapman says, everybody who comes to work every day is someone's precious child. I would say someone's precious child, husband, wife, auntie, uncle, cousin, whatever. And that's a huge responsibility. So many things to reflect back on and, and, um, and, and note. Um, I, I love all your, um, your, your aphorisms, your, your quotes about culture. 
Um, one last question, Gary, which is going back to that game of two truths and one lie. So which of the three statements is the lie and what, what's the truth? Well, believe it or not, I actually did have an Afro hairdo when I was 18 years old. And I was a radio announcer in Sydney, Australia. I used to do a Sunday morning radio show. Even though I did play rugby, it was never first grade. <laughs> so, so I got it right. You got it okay. right, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, where can people find out more about you, Gary, and like maybe follow your, your leadership path? Well, thank you for the opportunity to share that. Um, I have a website. It's www.thelearningmoment.net. Um, and on that, in that, on that side, it has, there's also a page on that that has probably about 20 or 30 books that I recommend uh, that I update over time that I found valuable. Um, and please follow me on LinkedIn. It's G-A-R-R-Y-R-I-D-G-E at LinkedIn. Uh, I think I have about 125,000 followers uh, on LinkedIn and I'd, I'd love people to join and I share on LinkedIn and my experiences and my learning moments. So Gary, thank you for, um, from my heart for, for the work you've done for not just the people, but also their families and their communities. I think more people need to think about the impact of our leadership, the collective impact. And for everyone listening, thank you. And do hit the subscribe button if you don't want to miss the next episodes because there's lots of interesting guests coming along. And don't forget to tell us what you think by emailing rethink at rethinkculture.co and keep leading. Thank you. <laughs>